1: Today we are going to be continuing a conversation about university hunt programs. We have our four guests rejoining us: Dr. John Eady, Dr. Kevin Ringelman, Julie Wynn, and Maddie McFarland. And we're going to we're going to continue what has been a very exciting conversation. We're going to hear some more about the experience that each of these individuals has had throughout this hunt program. And we're looking really forward to getting into it. So, John, Kevin, Julie, Maddie, thanks for joining us again.
2: Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Good to be back.
1: Thanks, Mike. Well, now I want to talk to Maddie and Julie. This is the part that I'm most excited about. Um, and, and I hope our listeners are as well. We just had to have Kevin and John on as the necessary precursor to all this kind of stuff. But now we really want to have yeah. fun with the, the, the discussion that matters the most, you might say, is the experience of the participants in this. And so, Maddie, I'm just going to start with you. And it's, you know, I, I just I want to allow you to tell this story as as you want to. I don't want to ask you too many questions about it, but let's just just start with um, your range of emotions as you went through the program, generally speaking, are there certain aspects of it that's that stood out to you most that were um, that you found most rewarding? Let's just start there.
3: Knowing what I know now and having been through the student hunt program, I sometimes look back at my initial view of hunting and harvesting wild animals. And I feel almost like ashamed or embarrassed. Um, You know, when I came into the uh, wildlife program at LSU, my view on hunting was I'm not against it. But why would I participate when I can just buy my meat at a grocery store? You know, the idea of taking the animal's life seems so foreign uh, and almost cruel. And, you know, I mean, ashamed now because that's such a disconnected viewpoint to have. Um, to not want to know really where your food is coming from and how you get that food is a huge disconnect, I think, that a lot of people have, um, especially with hunting. So I think the biggest thing that came from the hunt program for me was a whole new perspective. Um, not just on hunting and how I feel about it, but about where my food comes from. Um, I make more conscious decisions now, even when I'm at the grocery store, just because I've had this experience. Um, and I think another emotion that has been really prominent for me out of this whole experience uh, and the student hunt program at LSU is this sense of pride and being proud, not only of myself, but Uh, My younger sister just recently graduated LSU and she went through the same program as I did. uh, And she went through the student hunt program with Dr. Ringelman as well. And my sister is a pescatarian, so she only eats fish and seafood. And she still took that leap, you know, to hunt. And like Dr. Edie said, with some of the vegans who have been on the hunt is that she has this whole new perspective too, where she would be open to consuming meat uh, if it's wild harvested, if she knows where it's coming from, especially too, if she's the one who harvested. Um, and LSU put together these videos called Preserving the Hunt um, about the student hunt program. And she was featured. And I remember watching those videos and just being so proud because this is another thing that I have to bond with, um, with my little sister. And knowing that she went out there uh, to do something so foreign to her and shot a limit Uh, I mean, that's just a big cow sister moment, you know?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So she shot a limit. I have to ask if you shot a limit too.
3: Uh (laughs) (laughs) There's a a little bit of jealousy there because I have yet to, uh, shoot a limit, but, uh, my feeling of pride for her overshadows that for
1: sure. Oh, that's awesome. So what about the, the act of, of pulling the trigger? On the bird, I know as a hunter, and I would imagine most every hunter has had this experience at some time in their life, where they're they're recognizing the conscious decision that they're taking to to take the life of another living animal, and so uh, th- there's a moment of reflection there, even for the most seasoned hunters. And occasionally, it, it you know, I, I go back to those to that place, that time. Did you kind of have that moment as well where you, I don't know if you were hesitant the first time you saw a duck, did you hesitate to pull the trigger? Were those thoughts running through your mind, anything of that nature?
3: That really came to me after I had already pulled the trigger and we had the bird in hand. You do have this moment where you reflect on it. You know, what does that mean for you to have taken something's life for the first time in your life? Um, And, you know, it wasn't easily overcome at first, but you do develop this sense of respect and honor for what you're taking from the environment and how you're taking it. Um, and you just it it basically manifests this manifests itself into a deeper Connection of your surrounding environment um, and why you're there.
1: And Julie, now to you, talk about your experience going through this program. Any any particular aspect of it that was most meaningful to you? Or that you were most uncertain about going through? What did this mean to you? And and how has it influenced any aspect of your life uh, since then?
4: I'll, I'm going to be grateful for this program for forever for a variety of reasons. But um, like I said before. I'd never grown up with uh any kind of hunting or fishing background. And like Maddie said, I knew relatives or distant friends that would hunt, but I kind of just felt like, you know, one, I didn't really feel like it was for me, and also it wasn't as accessible to me. Um, so it felt very intimidating getting out there. But the ease of this program in allowing me on my first hunt means everything to me because I um have developed this relationship with my stepdad who was an avid who is and was an avid hunter Um, so I remember after shooting my first teal and having that great weekend sending pictures off to my mom and stepdad and him just immediately calling me on the phone and just the excitement that he shared with me and um not not just knowing that I I had this education background in hunting and management, but that I actually did it. And he works up a lot in North Dakota. And going through this program has helped me build this relationship with him, where we now take yearly hunting trips together. And that's something that's just me and him. Um, and it's so so important to me because we get a couple of days to a week of just being with one another and hunting with one another and just, it's an emotional thing, I think. Um, and I have to thank LSU for giving me this opportunity and the gentlemen that we hunt with up in North Dakota always give me lots of praise in, uh, my muzzle safety and bird identification and stuff like that. They're thoroughly impressed with me, but I think to me, it just means so much that I have this connection with my stepdad. That is just something that me and him do together annually.
1: Julie, that's a very special and and personal experience that and story that you've just shared there, and so I thank you for that. Um, one thing I can I can say to our listeners, uh, just share with with y'all kind of what we're doing here. This is. Uh, w- I, we're actually using Zoom video to help with this with this podcast episode because we have so many guests on it. And so I can tell you that this is by far uh, the episode that I think will hold the record for the, the, the biggest smiles of all the participants that we're going to have. So just hearing <laughs> Julie and Maddie tell the stories, I'm looking at John and Kevin and actually myself, and, and we're all just kind of smiling as we hear Julie and Maddie tell these stories. And I think that does just reflect how special these experiences are, uh, the connection that we develop to the resource. And so, Julie, have you found, you're your working as a consultant now, have you found is this, this, this experience benefits you? You've talked about how it benefited you personally. Have you found that it benefited you professionally as well in conversations and discussions and maybe the way you relate to other people that are your clients or other other colleagues?
4: Definitely. Um, and not, not just clients, but like you said, colleagues as well. It's really nice to have that um, base level of understanding and being able to share experiences about hunting and, oh, what did you do this weekend? And, you know, things like that, where I just have a deeper connection with the people that I'm talking to and, and working with.
1: Kevin and John, a question for you. You know, we've talked about these programs as both introducing the our next generation of professionals to hunting, uh, because that's a very important constituency, but then also as a way to recruit new hunters. Uh, and, and I'm going to ask you, get you guys' opinion on this. You know, we, this is maybe, I don't know if we'd say it's a, a debate, but it's certainly a discussion within our field a lot about whether someone needs to be a hunter in order to be a, a competent wildlife professional. And so I just want to get your, your thoughts on that. Kevin, what do you tell your, your students in terms of, you know, can, can you be a successful professional in this field if you don't hunt? Um and so yeah, just want to get your thoughts on that and how it relates to the, the course that you're teaching here.
5: Absolutely. Um I think that there's a great number of of wildlife biologists, conservation biologists that are non hunters and they will forever be non hunters. Um, the number of those individuals who are non hunters is likely to increase and that's those are facts, right? That doesn't take away from, from their skill set and their perspectives that they bring to the table. On the other hand, it's still valuable to have a hunter worldview and a hunter voice in that conservation and management conversation, right? And so, you know, I'm not one to read the tea leaves here, but but to me, the the future of of waterfowl and and wildlife conservation more broadly, you know, the the pool that we're drawing from and the people that are successful in moving into the profession are urban and suburban women, right? And so that, that... Merely that shift in in demographic makeup and the perspectives that they bring means that the face of, of wildlife management is changing. Um, and the the goals and policies and the strategies that are implemented in wildlife conservation are going to reflect that change worldview. I think our job as as educators is to recognize the, the changing face of, of our profession and try to bridge the gap between sort of the historical context of wildlife management, which was very hunter-centric, um, and bring in the new faces uh, of wildlife management and provide them with that worldview in order to carry us forward in the next 25 and 30 years of conservation.
2: And I appreciate what Kevin said. And and absolutely, I don't, you know, you don't have to be a hunter to be a conservation biologist. There's lots of perspectives and skill sets to bring to the table. I, I think my personal experience and one that was actually quite surprising to me, um, you know, we would take kids out in the marsh and, and we would get them dirty. And I used to think just that mud on the boots was enough, that just getting some of that, you know, down and dirty experience. And then I realized actually the harvest is a really important part of it. Um Not so much that they have to be a hunter, but they have to understand that they're going to be working with hunters. If you're working in the waterfowl and wetland world, Uh, I mean, I, you know, I get Kevin always uh, teases me about my cheesy sayings, but, but, but the actual commitment, you know, when a student pulls you know, pulls the trigger, takes a bird, that's, that's a commitment to the marsh. And I, you know, I, I say that, that, you know, we take, it's an oath we take from the marsh with gratitude. And so we, we must give back with generosity, And I think there's there's too much intellectual conservation where people intellectually buy into it, but they're not giving anything and they're also not taking anything. So there's not that personal investment. And I think one of the things and there's many ways to get this. But one of the things that hunting does is it provides a direct commitment and a value to you um, of being involved in wetland and waterfowl conservation. It means something to you other than just an intellectual Activity—it's a visceral activity—and I had no idea how powerful uh, that was until I saw that with the students. So, so I think that's a really important educational component. And then the other thing—and and Julie and Maddie spoke really eloquently about this—just just that decision to pull the trigger to take an animal's life, and and all of the emotion and and thought and and um, discomfort that goes into that. I, I, I applaud your courage in doing that. I mean, you didn't come into this from the, you know, a family perspective and, and it wasn't gradual. It was a, it was a conscious decision on your part. And that's a really tough decision. Um, it's really hard to make. And I, and I think when students go through that process, they learn something sort of fundamental about themselves and they know that they can make those kind of decisions. And that carries over into so many other aspects of life, not, not just sort of the hunting side. So, so, Mike, I'm you know, I'm sort of giving you a, a two sided answer. No, I don't think you have to be 100. But I just realized the empowerment of those experiences. And you've heard it beautifully from from Julian Maddie, um, of how that experience can change your perspective. And I think it opens the door that opening the door is key. The, the one other thing I'll say, Mike, sorry, I don't I'm going on a bit too long here. But but for my students as well, one of the reasons for the camp is I would see them go out and they would get jobs. And they would be, you know, working in the check station or somewhere and a hunter would say, well, do you hunt? And and if they said no, the door kind of closed a little bit because the hunter is going, well, you don't really know where I'm coming from. And I don't know what your thoughts are. You could be an anti-hunter, whatever. As soon as they say, yes, I have, that door opens. and and then And then that person now knows, OK, you know where I come from. I don't have to explain myself to you. You understand my passion, my commitment, my history. And even if you don't do it yourself, you understand that. That, for me, as a as a wildlife professional, is a, an important part of their education. So, so I don't think it's necessary, but I think it's absolutely um, empowering. Thank you, John. That was that was well put,
1: and I appreciate that perspective. So, Julie, I want to go back to you now, and we heard John talk just a minute ago about about the, the this visceral connection that hunters and hunting gives us to the resource. And and that goes beyond just the resources, whether it be political resources or financial resources that the hunters may provide. It also includes their role in habitat management, direct management, either as a property owner or a a leasee in sort of an indirect role in providing a motivation for that habitat management to occur. As you went through this, Julie, did your Did your recognition of that direct and indirect role of of hunters with the habitat management side of things, did it change? Did it grow? Did you develop any new appreciation for that?
4: Um, Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we touched on it a little bit before, but just kind of everything that we had learned about in classes leading up to this was kind of more of a textbook style. But whenever we got to experience this and really be out there with these really great people, um, it really kind of clicked for me. Uh, I gained that appreciation and a better understanding. And it was really great also to me to see the respect that the hunters had with um, the game and the environment. And just it just is so special whenever you're in it. And that's not ever something that you can get from... A
1: textbook what was your impression with respect to their knowledge of the resource their knowledge of the habitat a lot of times we think about well the only way you can really understand uh, waterfowl or, or any any kind of issue is if you get formally educated about it but I think a lot of times we don't give Enough credit, I think someone earlier in this episode mentioned this. We don't give enough credit to the people that are actually out there on such a regular basis. What they see, their observations actually help educate them. Did that come off to you just as to how knowledgeable these individuals were about the resource?
4: Oh, absolutely. We were out with some of the best guides in the state, and just the way that they could identify a bird way, way up in the sky just by the way that it was flying or the sh- Slight shadow that it made, you know, over the water. It was really incredible to see that kind of experience and um, the knowledge that they had to the resources.
1: Maddie, what about you? I know you grew up in South Louisiana, so you're very familiar with marshes and a lot of the work that goes on there for various reasons. How did your appreciation or recognition of the role that hunters play in habitat management uh, change, if or or grow?
3: Uh, I think "grow" is a a really good word to use because. I don't think you really get the opportunity to fully appreciate the skills that these landowners or guides have, um, the types of perspectives that they form from being out there every day in observing. Until you can experience it yourself, and you know, take a morning to be out there in the blind with them, um, you know our first land managers or wildlife managers in the country were observers. You know they, I. It doesn't matter. You know, how many years of school I go through, what degrees I have, uh, these people that spend their lives out there uh, in the marsh will always have way more knowledge, a much better
1: understanding than I ever will. I think that's a great point. And I think it's it's a reminder that, that they can bring very valuable, valuable information to a lot of these discussions. So, Maddie, I want to ask you, uh, you and Julie, actually, I'm going to follow up with each of you here, just sort of uh, what was your favorite, overall favorite part of this entire experience?
3: I'd have to say uh, the camaraderie of it all. You know, I got to hunt for the first time um, in the blind with my best friend and my mentor, Dr. and being able to share that first sunrise and the birds coming in, that excitement right before you pull the trigger with people that I really cared about and admired was probably my favorite part. And not just in that moment, but for the years that I've followed afterwards. Now, I've had the great opportunity to hunt now in five different states across the country. Um, And that all began with this common thing that I have with the people I've hunted with that uh, we enjoy being out there, that we appreciate the wildlife that we're hunting, that we respect the environments we're in. And that has led to a number of amazing experiences that I owe to my mentors and the people who have dedicated their time to take me out and uh, you know help recruit me into the sport and continue the passion.
1: Maddie, I want to follow up on that just a bit because we asked Julie a question earlier in this episode about how this may have have uh, influenced or enhanced her any of her professional uh, aspects now that she's working as a consultant. But you're you're still in graduate school, uh, so. You just talked about how this experience introduced you to to new opportunities. Maybe it enhanced some of your networking of, of friends or, around this around the pursuit of hunting. But professionally, have you have you noticed that it, maybe it has opened any additional doors for you, or or do you think it will kind of going forward?
3: Oh yeah, I would say I would say for sure. Um, I think what Julie and I offer in our experiences. Um, are or is a pretty unique perspective in that we didn't come from the traditional hunting background, like some people put it. And yet we've had the opportunity to experience it and to merge it with our outlook and our schooling um, on wildlife management. So we almost straddle this line between two worlds that I think is really beneficial when it comes to creating. Or fostering a connection or partnership with a landowner or another wildlife agency um, or land management partner in that we can understand each other on a different level. Or make that connection to where you know, people are a little bit more uh, open to your perspective or to your insight when they know that you can relate to something or relate to them on something that is so meaningful to them.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Being able to relate, being able to understand, it advances those conversations regardless of the nature of them. That's an outstanding point. Uh, Julie, what about you? Your overall favorite part, or maybe there are multiple parts of this experience.
4: I would say the best part of the experience would just be that feeling of coming full circle. I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but just that click between things we'd learn um, in the classroom with the physical experience. And it was a culmination of everything we learned. And kind of just a, a relief feeling that wrapped up the past four years of our studies. And um also obviously the connection I have with my stepdad now is extremely special. And that's something I'm very grateful for. Um, because I'm sure for him, coming into someone's life at 16, 17 isn't very easy to do. So the bond that we have now as the shared love for hunting is super priceless to me. And it's just kind of funny when I think back on it because you know, I never thought I would be so excited to go to middle of nowhere, North Dakota every year, but here I am just excited. and.
0: You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.
4: Ready to cherish those moments with him.
1: I guess I want to give Julie, you, and Maddie any... Uh, give you an opportunity to provide any final comments about your experience. And I guess one thing that I might ask you, if if there's someone listening to this that's maybe a little bit reluctant or maybe they're uncertain about hunting, uh, maybe it's someone that has the opportunity or is going to have the opportunity to go through one of these programs. If they're a little bit reluctant to that, what might you say to that person? Julie, let me start with you.
4: Um, I would say that, first of all, I definitely understand the hesitation um, and the nervousness to go into something so new, but it is really great. And I would definitely tell them to take that plunge because it's going to open your eyes up to what feels like an entirely new world uh, and will really help in a multitude of ways. You know, it's going to help in any future paths that you have, because if you stay in this field, and even if you don't, if you're in an area where hunting is common, just being able to have that common ground with someone and to be able to relate to them on something um, at this kind of a core level, I think is really important and is a a skill that you can only get from doing it
3: personally.
1: And Maddie, any final words from you or any any advice to people that may be considering this?
3: Yeah, well, for the advice, I would... Uh, tell anyone to just keep an open mind. Um, you know, just like when you're trying anything new for the first time, always keep an open mind. You know, listen, learn. Uh, you know what somebody has to offer you in a whole new experience. Like Julie said, can benefit you in a multitude of ways. And you know, I can't stress that enough. How, uh, like I said, as cliche as it sounds, how life changing this experience has been. And Um, I would just like to express my deep appreciation for everyone who has benefited or, excuse me, who has contributed to this experience, especially Dr. Ringelman and uh, Dr. Edie for putting in the time and effort to provide this experience for first-time hunters. And, you know, when it comes to recruiting new hunters, it really takes that time and effort commitment from experienced Hunters and individuals to make that experience last through the years,
2: wow, Julie and Maddie that's just uh that just makes it so worthwhile uh to hear that from from our perspective of what you got out of this and how you spoke it so eloquently i'm I'm super impressed and and delighted and honored uh, and also honored to be on this uh, podcast with you guys. It's just amazing yep, you can make me proud you know that
3: thank you thank you so much yeah that really means a lot yeah (laughs) i feel the same way yeah really grateful to be able to talk to you guys it's been wonderful
1: very nice very nice so maddie and julie Thank you to so much for, for sharing your time, sharing your experience and you know, sharing your thoughts. And some of which it sometimes was had a rather emotional connection to it. And certainly appreciate you sharing that, not just with me, but with uh, everyone that's going to be listening to this. I, I know it's going to be it's very valuable and it's going to be enjoyed by, by everyone that listens to this. So thank you very much for joining us. So Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. OK, so, John, I want to go back to you now. We've talked about uh, About a lot of the fantastic experiences and sort of emotional transformations that a lot of the students that have gone through this have had. Have you had anyone come out of the program with, let's say, a worse impression or a more suspicious view of hunters and hunting than when they when they started?
2: No, and it's been amazing. We're twelve years in. Um, I was telling you before the podcast of a story of a student in our very first year when we did it, and she was in a blind actually with with uh, um, Paul and Sandy's nephew who was the guide that day. And, uh, Paul and I, when we do the camp, we go around and visit each of the students and see how well they're doing. And she was sitting there and she, she looked quite, uh, quite sort of overwhelmed. Um, Tyson was, you know, sort of had a stack of birds. He was showing her how to, how to uh, hunt very effectively. And, uh, and I thought, Oh, this is, uh, it looks like this didn't work for her. And, and I'm going to be hearing about this um and you know after the hunt and asked her how you know how to go she's oh, always fine so did you find it upsetting yeah well and you know it's a lot to think about yeah of course yeah that's good and uh went through the whole quarter didn't hear anything you know i was expecting to get get a call from her parents or something well i did get a card uh, just before or actually just right after christmas and it was a Chris, uh, christmas card with a picture of her and her dad he's holding a she's holding a green wing teal and a new shotgun and she said she went out with her dad for the first time. He bought her a shotgun for Christmas and shot her first duck. And the card was Merry Christmas and a happy new teal. And it just, you know, that was the only time that I think uh, maybe one other student who decided after she shot her first bird, she chose not to. And that's totally cool. That's fine with us. Um And that's those have been the only the only two instances where there was any sort of, uh, not, and I wouldn't say it's negative, Mike, it was just a, you know, sort of some, it takes students different amounts of time to process this. And this is a really courageous decision for them. They're, they're going to this place of, you know, discomfort and they're pushing through it. And that's, that's hugely important part of this whole enterprise. So, yeah, it's uh it's been astounding. It's been astounding.
1: So, John, that experience you just dis- you just described where you played a role in in that person's relationship, maybe uh, may- maybe advancing, maybe strengthening or expanding that person's relationship with their father. I know you and Kevin, you uh, you as well. You you two are among the best in terms of, of uh professors, graduate student advisors in terms of investing in their lives personally and professionally and educationally. But uh, how did that experience compare, John, where were she replied to you and, and you could see this expanded relationship she had with her father? How did that compare to any other reward that you get from education and training in your normal, uh, in your normal, normal day?
2: this is a huge uh you know sort of a wonderful profession as it is um but mike there's no there there really is no comparison you know at the risk of being cheesy i'm gonna i'm gonna relay a, a saying i used i used to think just getting the kids out in the you know sort of in getting them dirty and that would be sort of transformational form it isn't the hunting part is really critical so so i have the saying if you'll forgive me and i don't, I don't think i said this earlier in the podcast but mud on the boots blood on the hands skin in the game um that we won't sustain what we don't care for, we won't care unless we get value from it. We can't value what we don't know and haven't experienced. And and it used to be the blood on the hands is an integral component of it. I think it's that, it's that sort of connection and that ownership that really is transformational for them. And you just can't get that in any other type of teaching experience. And and I just realized through this camp and it's it's been transformational for me that there's no other way. I mean the marsh is the only teacher the the Mother Nature is the only classroom. You just cannot get that across intellectually in the classroom. And so, so, and, and, and you don't even know as that example shows and as Julie's experience, for example, shows of all the other sort of, uh, aspects of this experience in their personal lives or connections with relatives, with friends, um, their own personal growth, uh, is it's, it's been absolutely mind boggling as an educational experience for me. Uh, I haven't had yeah, Nothing, nothing compares to it.
1: Kevin, what about you? Have you I, you've been participating in these hunt programs for for fewer years than John, but have you uh, I, I guess two things. have you encountered anyone that came into the that left the program having a worse impression of hunters and hunting than they did before? And then is there any particular particular story that stands out to you along the lines of what John described where you see, this emotional change or this, uh, some sort of expanded relationship with either a friend or family member of some of the people that have come through the program?
5: Sure, Mike. So um, I don't think, I can't recall any student emerging from our program having a more negative view of hunting when they went in. Um, I've been in the blind with students where when they shoot their first stock, they're really distraught over the experience. I mean, it wasn't a clean kill, had to shoot it again on the water, and that was just very traumatizing for someone who's never experienced that before. And she had, she had a hard time sort of moving beyond that for the rest of the hunt. Um, but she, uh, she was a student in my lab and and worked for me for, for more than a year. Um, and she sort of internalized that I think as, as part of, part of the process, um, part of what it means to participate in the food chain. Uh, and so I think she didn't have a negative view of hunting, but she came out transformed, um, understanding where protein comes from, I think was a real eye opener for her.
2: Um, you know, that's a big thing. And I think, I think we have to realize we're, we're now working with a different constituency. I think Kevin's experienced this as well. So the kids that are doing these camps, you know, we did, it, it was, uh, you know, as part of a sport, it was something that we enjoyed doing. It was an activity for a lot of this, this generation. Now they're really interested in, in the process of, as Kevin said, nicely procuring their own protein. Uh, I mean, I love eating duck. Absolutely. No question about it. That's a big part of it. But, but for them, I think it's almost a bigger part being part of the food chain. And it's a different little bit of a different mindset. And I think we as wildlife professionals, as we're thinking about, you know, R3 and, and recruiting new hunters and, and recruiting new professionals need to be aware that there's a different perspective. I think that this, uh, the younger generation has about the role of hunting in society. And, and I think these camps also play an important role in, in, in doing that. I think Kevin said that nicely.
1: Kevin, I want to come back to you and ask about uh, something that I know I've seen come out of LSU related to your program. It relates to social media. And I I know as your students go through this, pretty much all your students now are going to have some sort of social media presence. Oftentimes it's going to have a presence on multiple social media platforms. So just from, from the participants alone, there's an opportunity for that social media reach to to be achieved. But but LSU uh, and, and the, the people that helped you with this, with this program actually developed a series of videos. Share with our listeners about those, and then where could they look those up? Sure,
5: Mike. Well, let me back, back up just a second. Um, the way that our students use social media in the marsh on these hunts is intentional. So we cover this in Hunter Safety as how to be ethical hunters, right? When you, in the day and age where you're posting pictures for hundreds or thousands of people to see, you need to be cognizant of what your image is portraying of hunting, right? So we're beyond the age of throwing bloody deer on hoods of trucks and stuff, right? And so that can portray hunters in a negative light to non-hunters. And so we're very intentional uh, in providing our students guidance with what is appropriate use of social media um, on these hunts. And, and the, the result has been very positive, right? So all of these students who are going into the marsh, who are taking pictures of a dog making a retrieve, of sunrise over the water, of their friend's first duck, those images are being shared with a massive constituency, uh, with universally positive branding for hunting as a, as a fun youth activity, right? And so I think the reach that we can leverage through social media is, is really important. Um, and to your point about, about LSU picking up on this, um, we're very supportive university um, and administration for this program. And uh, a couple of years ago, they sent out uh, a photographer to one of our student camps uh, in Shreveport and took some phenomenal pictures. And I think he came back uh, to LSU and his department with a lot of a lot of positive stories to tell. And so this past year, they sent out videographers to several of these hunts and not only documented the, uh, the hunts themselves, but came into the classroom to, yeah. to get the perspective of us teaching them about ecology and wing identification and then post-hunt reflections with the students. And so it's, it's a three-part series. Um, it's available on the, the LSU public relations website. Um, you can find links to it on, on my faculty websites. Um, but they're really well done, and I think that they do a good job of documenting not just, I mean, duck hunting doesn't end with the kill shot, right? It, it's, it's the before, pre-harvest, and it's, it's how you reflect on that experience afterwards that really makes it uh, the full experience.
1: And I can attest to the quality of those videos they are they are very well done. so I would encourage our listeners to uh, spend a few minutes uh, searching for those and watching them. They're what maybe three, five minutes in length, something of that nature.
5: yeah, they're short but it's it's a good way to to kick off fifteen minutes when you're supposed to be working
1: <laughs> hey, kinda, you can even kind of consider it educational, you know that's there's nothing wrong with that i also I also like very much what you said about or, or the the deliberate nature of the way you you talk about and you discuss as a class uh, proper use of social media—it's almost like that should be a um, uh, an introductory class in every department on campus, I would imagine. So, uh, but but yeah, great job for you for thinking about that and, and incorporating that into into the course. What about other? And I guess Kevin, I'll direct this to you. What about similar programs at other universities? Are you aware of those? What's there? Um, how widespread is this? Is this kind of hunt program becoming in in uh, in the U.S. and Canada? If you know of anything there,
5: uh, to my knowledge, it's sort of expanding exponentially. So there's this growing recognition um, that that introducing the next generation of conservation stewards to hunting has immense value in terms of their education and so programs have emerged at places like clemson and university of delaware mississippi state colorado state university of wisconsin stevens points just to name a few i think there's somewhere on the order of a dozen to 20 programs that are in some form of development or action a lot of those are being supported by delta waterfowl um, they hired a an individual, Stephen Sowell, to actually manage their university hunt programs. And so it's a nationwide effort on their part to sort of provide this opportunity for university students with the recognition that not everyone can have the LSU model where we do it through the
1: academic institution.
5: There's a a really important role for for NGOs um, and others to play in supporting these sorts of endeavors.
1: Kevin, that's a natural segue to the last question that I wanted to ask of you and John and that's that's really to give you an opportunity to acknowledge all of your, uh, your co-authors on your paper uh, but as uh, but in that larger uh, in a larger view all the partners that are that are critical uh, components of this. So Kevin, I'll start with you.
5: Yeah, it's a long list. I mean, Top of the list for 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 me is are my colleagues uh, Brett Collier and Luke Labord. And in terms of the university uh, organization and implementation of this, we are we are co-equal in this in this regard. Um, We all put in you know a lot of work to make it happen. Um, This is of course in collaboration uh, with with Larry Reynolds at at Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, who's been there from the beginning um, and sort of moved it into this uh, private lands partnership that we have. And, of course, the landowners, right? And the, the club managers, Richard Lipsy, Randy Haney, Terrell Brown, Paul Dixon, John Childs, John Barton Jr., Chip Mossberg, Mac Bullock, Lauren Kleinpeter, peter Tanner and Doug Jones, all of the, the hunting clubs and their staff that provide our students with a meaningful experience. I mean, you know, these are hungry undergrads, and they're thrilled to just get a really good hot meal um, for a couple of days on these, on these hunts. So it, it really is... Um, uh, a large collaboration that's required uh, to bring this to fruition. And so we've been lucky enough to have support of those folks, as well as forge some unique partnerships. Um, we had support from Delta Waterfowl, but also with um, with Merlina Outdoor Incorporated, Jason Hart, who provides uh, our students with some of the camouflage and hats and things like that that they just don't have. I mean, we can't outfit 35 students in camouflage um, it's just not an option. So, so I think there's a, um, um, a, a growing opportunity for corporate sponsorship, um, in some of these, and, you know, we're happy to send them pictures of students enjoying themselves in a hunt, um, in, in their branded gear. So I think there's, there's, there's room for opportunity there as well.
1: And John, same question to you. I want to give you an opportunity to acknowledge all the partners that are, that
2: are involved in your program well thanks mike first can i can i make a plug for uh for a video we didn't do u c davis didn't do it but jay goebbels from c w a did it there's a if anybody's interested he did a he did one in one of our very early camps so it's on youtube it's just california waterfowl uh slash u c davis college hunter camp um has about a quarter of a million views now and only twenty three dislikes so i guess i guess yeah. it's okay <laughs> but it's uh um, Actually, And the reason for pointing that out is one of our early hunters, Georgia uh, Ramos was, is just absolutely eloquent. She's just like Julie and Maddie. And just, just to see, you know, this experience through their, their eyes is just, is, uh, is really, you know, it's fantastic. Um, so I've got to tip the hat to Bob McClendress, who was the president of CWA. Um, and, and is now an adjunct at UC Davis was my co-conspirator in this. And so he and I were really sort of working. And then, and then Paul and Sandy Barnison, who, who, um, basically provided sort of the facilities and the, the financial support and, the, uh, and all the other support to make this happen. And then, you know, ours is a different program, as we've talked about. It's not run by UC Davis. It's run by California Waterfowl. So huge thanks to those guys. I mean, without a private partner dealing with all the gear, the programming, George Obersted was the coordinator, Taylor Byers, in the last couple of years just unbelievable the amount of work to pull this off in a single weekend and then um jake Mezzoli at cwa so those folks having a private partner ngo paul was the is the past president of ducks unlimited so you've got the two big you know ngos duck ngos involved it's just phenomenal uh and then all the guides i mean and, you know that's the other thing that just blows me away is here are, here, are, here are all these people really high level waterfowl professionals giving up one of the primo days on a weekend you know, during the end of the season when hunting really good in California, we finally get some weather and they're giving it up to spend the morning, you know, in the blind with a, the with a first time hunter. Um, there's a long list of them and they keep coming back year after year. I can't go through them all, but uh, but huge tip of the hat to all of them for for helping helping move our profession forward in what I think is a really creative and um, important way an experiential basis for for our growth.
1: This has been outstanding, and it's been a phenomenal story, and I know going forward it will continue to be a phenomenal story with the continuation of the hunt programs here um, you know, going forward. And so, John – Kevin, Julie, Maddie, I just personally thank each of you deeply for the time that you've given to this. And also, John and Kevin, thank you for the time that you spend and that your partners spend in this very important endeavor. Um, And so this has been great. I know our listeners are going to like these episodes. And so thank you so much for joining us here on the Ducks Unlimited podcast.
2: Thanks very much, Mike. Appreciate it.
1: We extend a very special and very warm thank you to all four guests that participated on, on each of these episodes related to the University of Hunt programs. We certainly hope you have enjoyed their stories, their experiences. I know I have. We thank all the participants and all people involved in these University of Hunt programs across North America. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work that he does with these podcasts. To you, the listener, we hope you've enjoyed these episodes and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina ProPlan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.